listen to Death and All the Rest. I'm Lizzie Salwin. And I'm Zoe Inglefield. Hey Lizzie. Hi Zoe, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me again. Always a pleasure. What's been happening? Uh, not much. Just went to the gym this morning. Good Kids girl. are at kindy, so... What's not to like? I know, it's a bit of a treat. Real treat. We just once again want to thank everyone for your continued support. It's very much appreciated. Very much. And we're going to get right back into it. So, Lizzie, you said to me once that when your mum fell and hit her head, she became paralysed and you had to think of new ways to carry her. Oh, yeah. What What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, it was very, very sudden and she refused to go to the hospital. So the paramedics... Sort of just put her back in her, in a chair, from what I remember. And then the hospice that day was going to organise us uh, a wheelchair. So the wheelchair came, and Mum absolutely hated it. I think again, it was, you know, in her mind, another reminder that she's going to die. Yeah. And now is sort of lost all control of herself. She's now mm. fully dependent. That was a huge t- turning point, obviously, that day. I remember, I think last episode, I told you about the mention the funeral songs. Well, yeah. this is. Um, actually on that same night she we'd carried her to bed I don't know how I think we tried to make sort of like a makeshift sling with a duvet and that didn't work was this was she still upstairs at this point no or no, no she no, was this downstairs. Is downstairs now yeah. yeah and when people are dying they I actually don't know this but they seem to lose muscle tone so mm. their weight is they it's sort of like a dead weight yeah they can't assist you with lifting they, which nothing. makes it so much harder yeah so the duvet was a big failure and then I <laughs> couldn't get a good grip on it. So you're carrying her like in, in a hammock made out of a duvet. Yeah, that's oh. sort of what I remember. And then she wanted to get out of bed. Yeah. Um, and she wouldn't just sit on the edge of the bed, move to the wheelchair and be wheeled into the room. No. no Even no. though you had a wheelchair. No, not mum. Well, it kind of, it was such a mission to get her in. Right. And then to have to get her out again. So we just sort of carried her. I remember that this night was terrible. I think it was probably one of the worst nights. And we had family over we had to get her out of bed. So dad took her under the arms and I think we had one, two of us had two legs each and obviously it was painful for her, but mm. no, she was determined. So one of us nearly dropped her and oh, oh it was awful. No. And then she got onto the couch. Cause, because your mum, you said, always maintained an appetite. She didn't have like that dramatic weight loss that no. like my mum did. No, not at all. She sort of ate up until three or four days before. Yeah. Um. So and, it was really like a workout for you getting her around the house. Oh, Yeah. That actually, it was the night after that when she went into that terminal restlessness yeah. um, and subsequently went to the hospice. But um, I remember also that night, I think we were all smoking. One of us ended up lighting the bin on fire. The funeral <gasps> oh. songs were playing. Mum was yelling. Everyone was just... At In the shambles. It was... it was an absolute scene. Oh, no. Um, but... It's funny you talk about your mum not wanting to use the wheelchair because one of the things I can remember is, like, my mum lived in Milford, which, you know, for people that aren't familiar with Milford or Auckland or whatever, it's sort of like a pretty nice suburb and there's, like, a big shopping area. Like, Mm. there's a mall and street shops and stuff. And she lives pretty close to where all the shops were. But when she wasn't able to drive anymore, and she definitely would have struggled to walk that far, I was like, Mum, why don't we get you, like, a little mobility scooter? You can park it in the garage. (laughs) I can imagine Kathy hooning around on that. Totally. And she was like, I remember she was like, "Eh, no, not doing it. And I was like, why not? I would get a mobility scooter. Like, they look 
fun. I see. And I'll use it when you die, thanks. Totally. And you see all the oldies, like, hooning around on Well, them. it's a sense of control. You know, yeah, they can like, do their own thing. I'm sort of like, mum, would you not... Because she had, um, the way my mum worked with her very frugal mindset she had literally rented out every single room in her house oh. to like flatmates and stuff and she didn't need the money but she just that was just her jam and yep. you know god bless her and they loved her yeah they did love her and one of her flatmates lynn was lovely but she would always be sending lynn off down the road to get her a loaf of bread <laughs> or some more potato and gravy or whatever oh, yeah, forget that yeah and i was like mum you can't kind of expect other people to be doing all this stuff for you all the time. Like, obviously, I'm more than happy to, but I don't live super close to yeah. you. So if you had a little mobility scooter, you'd be able to maintain your independence. Exactly. Like, would you not rather have that than be like, oh, I don't want people to think I'm an old fuddy-duddy in a mobility <laughs> scooter. Like, they're cool. Sometimes, I don't know, sort of forget. I think they sort of forget that, I don't know, that they are quite dependent now. And yeah. And it'd be so hard. I totally get it. And it's... It's sort of a tricky one because even when mum lost her ability to drive and like I have, I had two little kids at the time and I couldn't take her every week to all of her appointments at the hospital and we're getting all of her friends to drive her and, you know, sometimes she would go to the hospital and it, the appointment or the visit at the hospital would end up being hours and hours oh, and no, hours. And I sort of had to say to mum, I know you say like your friends are more than willing to take you and... They were a lot of the time, but also it gets to a point where you kind of, I don't want you to become a burden on people. I well, you've, rather... And you're very aware of that and, and yeah. sort of take take it on board that you're putting others out. Yeah, Exactly. And I, I don't know if necessarily she thought about it that way. It's like, wouldn't you rather the time that you spend with your friends just be like ni- doing nice things that you'd like to do together opposed to them taking, you know, a day out of their week to sort of hang around at the hospital and stuff like well when sort of mum obviously couldn't at this stage couldn't really do much to go out but her friends were really great and she'd have certain days with different people yeah. so they actually took the day off work yeah um, and that was really um nice because you had a time frame you mm. knew you knew what you could do in a certain amount of time and it was planned for them they didn't have anywhere else to go mm. and it just made it easier for everybody yeah. well one mum sort of agreed that it wasn't really the best idea to sort of depend on all her friends to take her to all these points appointments anymore um she did discover that hospice has a service where they will provide drivers yeah, for fantastic. for people so and that's super helpful like you know I think some of them are volunteers they are, I think a lot of them are mm. and they would you know she would get the same drivers sort of each time and they'd text her beforehand and oh, go and so pick her nice. up and then they'd, they knew Obviously, they did it quite a bit, driving patients, so they knew where they needed to go and generally where they needed to be picked up from, and it made it so much easier, and it sort of was less less anxiety for all of us thinking, okay, she's she's got chemo on Friday, like, who's free to take her, yeah. you know, who, who can hang around for that time, or who can drop her off and then go back in four hours and pick her up or however long it was. It makes you think, like, we're quite privileged to have had that, you know, what if, yeah. what if we didn't? Like, yeah. what if, you know... <clears throat> couldn't take time off uni and you had your two young kids and still had to work like a lot of people do and I think that's when you discover that that resources available take advantage of those yeah Yeah. um and it's a great help but at that stage what you were just talking about she was quite independent still then is that right like did the hospice assist her with going into the appointments no she they would just drive her because at this point she was still living at home she just wasn't able to drive herself and you know she was she wasn't interested in 
using Uber or yeah. a taxi or anything like that. It's that mindset again. They don't, well, they don't want to put people out. Yeah. But then. No, mine's the opposite. Mum yeah, was like, oh no, everyone will do this for me all the time. And I sort of <laughs> had to be like, mum, everyone does love you and everyone's willing to help. But I don't think you can expect everybody to be able, because for us, at this point, I, I was thinking this is going to be going on for years and years yeah, and years, true. and we can't sort of almost burn all our bridges now, like with everyone being willing to help. But in the end, it sort of was irrelevant, and you know, I'm just saying that it was much better for everybody once she started using the hospice drivers because, yeah. um, you know, it just made it so much easier for us, and no one felt sort of obligated or or put out or, or yeah. My mum would obviously go to the hospital, sort of once I think it was once every three weeks for chemo and then once every two weeks for sort of like an oncology catch-up and one thing we learned really early on is if you have questions that you want to know like from your doctor make sure you write them down before you go if you're going with someone who has the the diagnosis of terminal illness it's really overwhelming for them and especially if they are hearing sort of really tough news it's almost like every other thought goes out of their head. So it can be really important that someone is focusing on on what questions need to be asked. Make sure we find out the right information. Feel free to take like a pen and pad and make yeah, well, notes. Like take minutes like you're in yeah, a meeting type yeah. thing. Because yeah. we, we would say they when mum got told she couldn't drive anymore, initially they had said to us, oh, well, you won't be able to drive for six months. So when was this? This is when we found out the cancer had metastasized to her brain. Okay, yeah. So she had brain tumors. They was they said, you're not going to be able to drive again for for six months. That and is so, so weird. Like oh, I thought it was what, weird. What, did they think the tumors were just going to pop off, off? Well, I mean, I guess they assumed that she would get treatment, at like chemo and, uh-huh. and radiation. And maybe if they had shrunken the tumors, true, significantly then potentially she would have been able to drive again but at first mum was like oh no and I was really confused about it because she was saying oh they've just said I can't drive for six months so because she had just bought herself a new car like the year before and so she was like well I don't want to get rid of my car I don't know what to do do I just leave it sitting there for six months and I remember thinking well they're not going to operate on your brain like that was never in discussion so I thought, I'm pretty sure you're not ever going to be able to drive again. But she was like, no, no, I can after six months. And I was like, I don't think you can. <laughs> wishful so, dreaming, man. Yeah, wishful thinking, I'm afraid. So Aww. so we made sure that, you know, but the, we, we kept forgetting. Like, I think we had about two appointments where we had forgotten to ask what the deal was with the driving. They then eventually said, we can't tell you. Because mum said, should I sell my car? And the, the doctor was like, I can't tell you whether or not you should sell your car. But I can tell you that it's unlikely you'll be able to drive again. So... So yes, sell your so, car. Yeah, so so yes, yeah, so we sold the car. And um, another point is when we would go and see the doctors for mum's oncology catch-ups, more than once, we would go just for a standard appointment where you think you're going for a couple of, or, you know, an hour or so, having a chat, seeing how things going, how you're responding to the treatment, how you're feeling. Um, and mum would show up and they would suddenly say, you've got an extremely high temperature you said you don't feel well. It looks like you've got pneumonia. You're going straight into being admitted into hospital. Uh-huh. And it caught us off guard more than once where we went yeah. just thinking we're having a normal appointment and mum's getting admitted to hospital. And we didn't have any overnight stuff with us. But that would have meant she was at North Shore Hospital. She was at Auckland Hospital. Oh, so they need to go to your house. Well, well, to her house. Yeah, to her house. And then half her stuff would be 
at her house in Milford, a bunch of it would be but at then, my house in Riverhead. That, but then wouldn't they then want to transfer to North Shore? Because no, she did she did all of her treatment okay. at Auckland. She Even did, if she was sick, pneumonia, they'd admit her under the oncology team at Auckland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They would just always do everything there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they'd be like, okay, so she's being admitted for, you know, at least a couple of days. So then it's like four o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday and I have to drive from Fabulous. Auckland Hospital to Milford to Riverhead back to Auckland Hospital. Oh my And gosh. we did that twice before we learnt we always, always, always would take a fully packed hospital bag okay, to and what, every appointment. What would be in the bag? Well, she would take her own headphones. Mum was big into listening to audiobooks, so she'd listen to audiobooks or she'd take a couple of novels if she was sort of, you know, still at that stage where she was reading. Um, she loved her own slippers, always yeah. wore her own nightgown. I think that is so important, like, you know, being an, a nurse and having worked in the hospital. There's sort of that mentality, and I think it's a subconscious thing, where, you know, you're admitted to hospital and then next minute the gown's on, Yeah, you're a patient. Yes. And it can sort of, from what I've talked about with patients, um, it is a huge loss of control. Yeah. And I found that, you know, saying, why don't you get someone to bring in your own pillow or yeah. um, just your own clothes, it's a lot more comforting. And it and kind of keeps their spirits up a bit more, don't well, you think? from observing, I, I totally think... That's true, and a couple of times I told people to do that, and they, they liked it. Better, yeah. They did, yeah. Mm. So, moral of the story: have a fucking night bag, yeah. to go to the hospital, yeah, at with any your time. own stuff, with yeah. your own shit in it. You know, Mum always wanted good pairs of knickers. Yeah, she always wanted juice, so I would always have like a couple of like little juice boxes yeah. or you know snacks that I knew she would like to eat because. You know, hospital food's not always the most gourmet, no, but they try their best. But I it's know, just not it's, the best. And and they're working with whatever resources they have. Exactly, and it's, it's tough. But you know, just take stuff that you know is going to make your time there more comfortable. And that's what she would do. And she would always take earplugs as well, because you know, oh, yep. you always for some reason get put in a room with four other people or three other people, and they're all big snorers. Yeah, or the the call bell ringers that yeah. ring every five minutes. Yeah. Um. So. Obviously, you got a wheelchair. Is there any other equipment that you guys used in the house? Um, we had we had the um, commode thing where they sit on the commode and sort of has a bedpan underneath it. Yeah. Or it can go over the toilet. Yeah. Um, none of them were as good as the one you came out with. Zoe. I know. I know. Well, like I said, I'm not sure if I've said this already, but because we were in Riverhead, every time we would get a piece of equipment, but it would take a couple of days to get here. And by the time it would arrive... Already mum would have moved past the stage of being able to use it. So we get this over the toilet frame, which is fine. You know, you put it over the toilet, you help them walk there. Yep. They sit down and then I'd help mum walk back. It literally, it arrived. She maybe used it for one day and then already she was not able to walk the super short distance oh, to like the toilet. It a meter. I mean, it was maybe, it's maybe four meters from her bed to oh, the toilet. Oh, you're not talking about the toilet. She had a toilet in her room. At oh, the eventually. But yeah. right now, when I, I'm i talking about when we got the toilet frame yeah, yeah. and we had it over the toilet, it was probably like four meters. She'd have to get out of bed with my help, walk to the toilet. And by that point, she was walking and she was on like, it was like, you know, sometimes you see those videos on like that go viral of like drunk people at festivals yes. and they're trying to walk in a straight <laughs> line. And it's just like the whole upper body is like on a massive lean. The floor is flat, but yeah. it's, she's like in a position like she's marching uphill like she could not oh it's so awful you know like she had the strength to walk but she just had absolutely no balance what that must like, have been where the brain tumor was totally she yeah. just had no 
Like, yeah, it no was... No coordination. No. So I would have to stand behind her with my arms, like, looped under her shoulders and walk. And she would just be, like, leaning on me as oh. though she was sort of mega pissed. <laughs> and so a couple of days I could do that and help her to the toilet. Help her. I'd have to lower her down and lift her back up and wipe her bum and make sure she was all nice and clean and yep. pull up her pants and stuff. But her pull up. Yeah. And then it got to the point where she just couldn't make that distance. Yeah. And I knew it would take us a couple of days before we could get bedside commode. So we just got one of Thomas's old um, work buckets out of the back of the van. Yeah. And I put the be- the the toilet frame next to a bed and I chucked that bucket underneath it. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. There we go. There was there was our bedside commode and. You know, she used that for quite some time and Lizzie, it got to a point where I couldn't get her onto the toilet unless you were there helping me and yeah. we would get on either side of her and manhandle her off the bed and onto the onto the there loo. There three of us one night. There Aww. was. It was. We had another, one of my other good girlfriends, Gina, who's also a nurse. So she's your, Gina's actually the friend that introduced you and I because you went yes. to, Gina's my high school friend and she's your nursing friend. Yes. So for anyone that doesn't know, that's how Lizzie and I know each other through our mutual friend. And yeah. we've become fast friends ever since. Um, but yeah, Gina and Lizzie were both staying one night and we had to manhandle mum onto the toilet because she kept saying she wanted to go. I know. And so we would put her on the toilet or the bedside commode and then just nothing would happen. And she would sit there for ages and, and her skin was like paper at that point. And oh, I remember she kept pinching the yeah. back of her thighs on that plastic seat and then they would bleed and oh. it was awful but she just knew that she didn't want to use the adult incontinent product she didn't want to use the giant nappy and fair enough I don't blame her but it got to the point where it was so hard to lift her on and off the toilet and like we'd we'd wrestle her on and she would just be absolutely exhausted and painful yeah and I'd have to stand in front of her don't forget when you're standing up, she's got all the pain pumps attached. Yeah. And it's, and it's a logistical nightmare, isn't it, it? It is. And she would be sitting on the commode and I'd have to stand directly in front of her, like holding either side of it. And she would just like lean her head against my stomach and her full weight would just oh. lean there, you know, to stop her from falling off. And she'd sit there for a couple of minutes and maybe she'd have a teeny tiny Meanwhile, you're tinkle. shaking like because like, you're so Yeah, like <laughs> using every ounce of my strength to make sure she doesn't flop onto the floor. Oh, God. So um, many memories. Yeah, but you know what? Sort of when she was using that bedside commode, at that point was only really doing wheeze. True. And I remember the hospice nurse came and was like, oh, she might be a bit uncomfortable because she hasn't done a poo. And it had been like a week and a half and she hadn't done a poo. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, what am I supposed to do? But at this point, she's not eating anything. She's not, she's drinking a bit, but I, I wasn't going to try and cram some prunes or a kiwi crush down her throat. <laughs> So I was like, what, are, what am I supposed to do? Like, And so the hospice nurse was like, okay, well, I'm going to give you a little enema and, and you, you're you just going to have to give that to mum and hopefully hopefully that, that'll make make things, some movements. That, right. that'll, that'll get the bowel moving. And then that was it. She handed me the enema and she was like, bye, like good luck. And she left. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? And so I messaged Lizzie and I was like, uh, hey, how's it going? Um, I have to give my mum an enema. Like, how the fuck am I going to go about doing this? I don't know what to do. Yeah. Luckily, Lizzie, being the darling that she is, came to my rescue. Wait, well, so I was I remember looking at that message thinking, Jesus, the last time I gave an enema, I had some poor old duck 
on all fours at the hospital waiting for me shoves this tube stuff up her bum and that's in my head I'm like it was like a big bottle wasn't it it's like liters isn't it no it's not liters it's oh. like I don't know definitely quite a lot of fluid it's called a fleet enema um and they do work well however you know so I'm in my head thinking how Zoe meant to give this how Zoe meant to give this and never thought there'd be the day I was giving Kathy Fenton an enema oh. anyway turn up I wasn't worried about do- doing the enema anyway Zoe handed me this little tiny Microlex enema and I was like absolutely the size of a lip balm. Yeah, it was it was teeny tiny, teeny tiny, and very easy to do. However, very unsuccessful. Yeah, nothing I mean, came out. She didn't even poop nah. ever again. No, but I mean, I and I would have been able to do it. Like it was just like a little tiny. tiny That's not really the point. The point no. was it was an unexpected thing to have to do. Oh, like, totally. I never out of your sort of scope, I suppose. Yeah, which and. Is, and that's one of the things that's really tricky is like when you're someone that's caring for someone in that capacity and you don't have a medical background, like it's just like I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And all so, of a sudden I'm doing all this really intense stuff. Like, you know, no one ever came around and showed me, oh, this is the a correct way to carry her. This is, you know, this is how you can maneuver her up and down the bed. or Like men handling the best ways to... No. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, yeah... You could, someone could say, oh, well, we should make a little training class to send people on. But stuff happens so quickly. Hey, that, that's a good idea. Yeah, but I was just going to say it's sort of like for my mum, her decline happened so quickly that I wouldn't have even had time to go and do it. But maybe if someone provided oh, yeah, a service point. where they came into the home. And, or a YouTube video. Yeah, I think there are YouTube videos because I actually did watch a YouTube video because when she was no longer able to get out of the bed onto the bedside commode and she kept saying she needed to wee and she didn't want to go in the adult nappy, her ex-boss, so mum was a ward clerk at a hospital and um, it was lovely. A lot of the nurses that she worked with would come and visit and they would show me a lot of the things that I didn't know how to do. Like they showed me how to use, they showed me how to give her a bed bath. I'd never done that before. Oh God, I remember Um, that. But one of them, he was like, this is her old boss. He was like, we need to get her a bedpan. She doesn't want to use the mm-hmm. nappy. She needs to go wee and we can't get her out to do the commode. So he, off he went. Don't know where he went. I think he went to the hospital and literally came back about 45 minutes later and was like, here you go. Here's a bedpan. Handy. Like, good luck. She needed a bag like mum. Yeah. It would have probably been easier by that point. So- but I was like, okay, great. I've got a bedpan now. What do I do? So I sat down. I looked up YouTube videos and watched a few YouTube videos on how to roll someone on and off a bedpan. Well, there you go. I did it a couple of times, and to be honest, it, it was sort of a wasted endeavour because she didn't actually wear the bedpan. By that point, it was like... It's too far gone. Yeah, too far gone. I remember when um, we had to do a bed bath for mum, and I was like, oh yeah, I've done this before at nursing. So off I went, got a little bowl of hot water mm-hmm. and some towels and some soap, everything I needed. Mum was in the bed. Anyway, so I've got my stuff. Well... Mum turns, the bucket full of water is in the bed. Oh. So mum's now swimming in a full on bath in her bed. Oh, that no. was fun. And and I bet you didn't have a mattress, waterproof mattress protector no, on. Of course not. So that never happened again. But what I discovered is the best thing, well, all you need is you can get these kind of like giant wet wipes. Mm. Actually, you can get them from places like Katmandu, they sell them. Oh, do but, they? Yeah. But there's other shops that sell them like for medical care. A couple of those, they're lovely and fresh, they smell nice. A nice um, warm flannel for her face mm. and a towel and that's about it. Yeah. So that was handy to know. And I think, you know, when, when someone is, 
pretty much completely bedridden. They don't need to be bathed every single day oh, from head no, to toe. They don't. I would say probably twice a week, but every day do the face, hands yeah. and feet because that just makes you feel nice and, and fresh. Teeth. And Yeah, and before mum sort of became really badly bedridden, she had had that fall where she'd broken her nose and she'd also, oh, yeah. she put her teeth, she put her teeth through her top lip and had to have stitches in her lip. That's right. So I was really worried about vigorously brushing her teeth because yeah. I didn't want to hurt her lips. So you actually bought me a special mouthwash. It was for like dry mouth yeah. mouthwash and oh, I would yeah. put that um, on one of the sponges and just rinse her mouth out as best I could. Yeah. And yeah, and just every day wash and moisturize her face and her hands. And I think that's enough to sort of like freshen you up. I think so. But I was really lucky that one of mum's like lovely nurse friends, um, this lovely lady, Rachel, would come. And oh, she came. She was so nice. She was amazing. She came almost every second day, I think. And she could just, like I was saying, how I struggle to sort of have one sided conversations. She just would chat to mum. She and I would walk amazing. past and she'd just be like sitting there holding her hand, telling her the story that was just like so lovely. But she was the one who actually showed me how to do a proper bed bath. Well, what did she do? Uh, what we did is we did get a little sort of bucket basin of warm water, but we put it at a, on a footrest at the end of the bed. So it wasn't actually on the bed. And we would lift the back of the bed up and you'd basically do start basically at the head, yeah. you know, wipe the face and remove all the top and you sort of roll them to one side and tuck the towel underneath so there's their, their top half is lying on a towel and then you just you know wipe their arms shoulders yep. breast Very back practical. all that sort of stuff and then you put the shirt back on them talcum powder is good too yeah and then you basically move and do the bottom half the same way you just you know keep i put a little bit of shower gel in the water and um yeah again then rolled her onto a towel so the towel was on the bottom half and then just yeah Good. Keep the flannel nice and moist and, you know. Yeah. And on that note, what I found hard, you might have too, dressing them. Yes. Mum would scream and it was obviously very painful. Yeah. And then you and I talked about doing this is sort of... There w- needs to be more options for, for people that aren't able to cooperate. Well, not cooperate, but help. Yeah. When, when someone cannot help get their arms through a t-shirt and stuff... I had a really difficult time and I sent my lovely sister-in-law Catherine out to the shops and I was like, can you buy mum some like stretchy material button down yeah, shirt? Yeah, that was key. And, and and she bought bought me a couple of pairs of pyjamas that, you know, I could button all the way down the front. It was easier to get them on, but, you know, we did have an idea that maybe it would be a good idea to make our own brand of um, almost magnetic clothing or something. Yeah, you know, we would... might need to look into that. As Yeah, I think we should. A bit of a side hustle for us. Not only that, but like rest homes, it would be really valuable for them or yeah. people that want to be independent, you know, may have arthritis. But or... don't have the dexterity to use buttons. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was so much, and same with mum, it's so much easier when we had the correct um, clothing. Yeah. Often mum would decide, no, I want to wear this today, and she was fucking determined. So a lot of the stuff, she wanted to wear dresses, and, and I think it just made her feel good. Yeah, so. she still wanted to, like, she clothing was a real part of her identity, whereas... Well, she still brought some clothes four weeks before she died. Oh, really? Like, Actually, out and about or online? No, out and about. She passed away in the most beautiful black cardi, and yeah. I forgot to get it off her when the funeral people came. Oh, yeah. But I felt too bad ringing them, being like, oh, mum's arrived, my... can I grab the cardi, please? Like, I mean, I guess I could have, but yeah, cause I didn't. They... <laughs> No one ever. I, I, when my mum died, the funeral home obviously I said came and picked her up and and 
she was wearing some pajamas and no one ever mentioned them again like where i took, they go well i guess they probably just get rid of them maybe they're selling them online <laughs> probably <laughs> god um imagine that because like you take i had to sort of go through mum's wardrobe and do my best to choose an outfit that i knew she liked and yeah. she looked beautiful in. and so i took that down and but then yeah i never heard any more about the clothes she was wearing have you picked her up yet no sorry <laughs> sorry grandma don't worry mum's still in my cupboard after 12 years she right. loves it there she's next to the dog and, it, and it's great but do you have your dog's ashes yeah i think and a cat's oh okay i yeah. mean i've got my <laughs> i've got my dad in the cupboard here and uh my grandma's in the cupboard at mum's house which i need to go and pick up because her house is on the market it's probably going to be sold soon oh, so we might sell with the ashes yeah just I don't know. I yeah. I need to think of what to. You know, I'll probably scatter them sometime. I don't think we like too sentimental about stuff like that. Like we are, but for me, I can just tell. I really feel like when someone has passed, that that body that's remained in the bed is not them anymore. And I, I don't think. Two times I've seen people spread their ashes, and I think it's a great idea. One time I was walking along the beach, and next minute this sort of. Oh my god! Stuff was flying at me. Oh, keep your mouth closed. <laughs> didn't quite realise people were spreading ashes, and, and you're like, <laughs> "What's <yeah>. that?" <laughs> so I don't think the ashes go to the intended destination. Destination they mm. meant to, but um, and another time, someone was doing the ashes and they fell down the hill. <gasps> <laughs> that's no. probably the like ghost of the person passing. Like that's what you get for keeping me in the cupboard for fucking ten years. Well, no, that's why I think. I don't think they wanted to leave the cupboard. Oh, That's they why like mum's still in there. She's better off in there rather yeah. than having it. Yeah. I've always thought that I would spread my dad's ashes, especially um, when he was younger. He used to work for Radio Haraki when it was like a, a pirate radio station out on the ship. Really? Yeah. So he had lots and lots of stories about that. I remember he used to tell me like he once got on the pist with the Beach Boys and really? had met the Bee Gees and like. Got on, obviously it's dad. He got on the piss with them as well, and like had an amazing time. Um, wow! So you know, Haraki Golf is like somewhere that I think for him is probably where he had some of the best, best memories. Times. Yeah. Of, you know, of his youth, and we'll make sure you don't flick them into someone's face. Yeah, well, I won't. And how did you feel about the change in dynamic? It all happened so quickly. Yeah, well, Mum had made me her power of attorney for all things medical, which. Yeah. At the time, I was like, yep, that's fine. I understand, you know, I'm when you're deemed not capable to make decisions for yourself, I can make them. Yeah. But in my head, I really thought that it would almost be a, a situation like she's in a coma and there's nothing more they can do. It's up to me to say, okay, maybe, you know. That's it. That's it. You know, she's she's fought as hard as she can. And, in a movie, switch yeah, off life support. Kind of. That's, that's sort of how I pictured it. When actually the reality was was much harder than that. So mm. I talked a little bit about, you know, when, when mum found out she had the tumours in the brain, she started to, she was still doing chemo and at first she had a consultation to do radiation and they talked about all the side effects and it sounded really scary and everything like that. So I was like, but then they said to her, the chemo is actually having a really positive impact on the tumours. They seem to be shrinking. So we now no longer think that you, you need to do radiation at this stage. Like the side effects are so intense mm-hmm. that the treatment isn't really going to be at benefit at this particular right. moment. Just keep doing chemo. It seems to be working. So that was fine. And then when she went into hospital for the very last time, so she had about over the course of her 
seven month illness, she was maybe in hospital about five times. Jesus. It was a lot. She'd get infections or she'd fall or something like that. There was always something else going on. The medications would kind of get a bit wacky and she'd need to go into hospital to get them sorted out. Gosh. And so that was that last time. So the, so I'll go back to the beginning of the end for us was one morning Thomas was getting ready for work and mum came in and she was like, Thomas, I need you to take me to that, that big, that big red (laughs) cowboy store so I can catch the bus and Aww. and I need to catch you know you know that shop that's the bus and I got to get on the bus because I need to go home there's that red shop where where the cowboys are and Thomas and I were just like <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about and Thomas said to mum he's like Kathy are you still asleep and she's like I've been up since five and by this point it's like 8 30 and I was just like what I was been like, up since five waiting to catch the bus. Yeah, waiting to catch the bus to the big red cowboy store. And I was like, <laughs> do you – I was like, are you having trouble finding the words or are you losing your train of thought? Like, which one is it? And she was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't – and she was laughing. She knew – Oh, that she, would be so awful. But she knew she was getting mixed up and confused. She knew something was, yeah. like, getting a bit wacky there. <laughs> and so that was, I think, on – it was like on a Wednesday morning and like literally the next day we were having a catch up with one of the oncologists. So we go to the hospital. Mum's living with us by this point because it, it had already gotten a bit, she didn't know what medication she was supposed to be taking and when. So yeah. we had had that meeting and she was living with us. So we go to the doctor and we're having the oncology meeting. And we're talking about this and that. And I kind of said to him, I told him the story about how she was very confused and couldn't get her words right and what was going on. And I asked, is this due to the medication like is she on a funny cocktail at the moment that's causing this or is it something to do with the mets in the brain yeah and he was like okay that that's a bit concerning so we'll admit you to the hospital we'll have a look at your medication and we'll, we'll see what's happening yeah and I was like okay great like because you know it, it's makes me feel a little bit guilty to say but sometimes when mum would get admitted to hospital it was a little bit of a relief to hand over that care for a couple I of days. I think that's completely normal and completely validated. And get the yeah, you do get the guilts, but it's in the best interest sometimes of them and yourself. Yeah, because yeah. it, it really was. It's a safety thing in a way too. Totally. It was like a 24-hour-a-day yeah. job. Like when mum was really, really sick, I was sleeping down in the room with her because I was scared she would fall out of bed oh, in the yeah, night yeah. And, and all that stuff. So. So I was like, okay, well, she's going to go to hospital for a couple of days. It'll be okay, and they'll sort it out, and hopefully they'll fix what's wrong with her medication, and she'll come home and she'll kind of be... Rally. Yeah, she'll rally around and, you know, kind of know what she's on about. (laughs) And so anyway, she went to hospital, and she was there for a couple of days, and then I get a phone call while she's in hospital, and I answer it, and it's one of the oncology radiologists, and he basically says... "Um." your mum's ready to be discharged, but I need to talk to her and I want to talk to her while you're there. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that's they, they've never done that before. Normally I would have to go and be like, where's the doctor? Excuse me, nurse, where's the doctor? And yeah. they, you know, poor nurses probably hear that all day. And I would have been one of them thinking, yeah, oh, Lizzie, where's the doctor? Yeah. Where's the doctor? <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> probably making out with someone in an elevator like Grey's Anatomy. Oh, no. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, I go to the hospital and he comes and, and sees us. The nurse pages the doctor now that I'm there. And he comes and talks to us. And he basically says, the tumours in your head are growing at such an accelerated rate 
your only option now is to do the radiation that we had earlier said oh. wasn't beneficial. It, it's now basically you have to you have to do it. And I was like, what? And he kind of I was like, so if she does this radiation, what what does this mean for us? If you're saying these tumors are growing so rapidly, he's like the best outcome would be like maybe a good year. She could have oh. another good year. And I was like, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's scary. Yeah. So we go home and I call up one of mum's friends and I was sort of talking to her and saying, you know, the doctors have said that we are going to be doing the radiation now. And she's booked in. She was going to do five days in a row starting from Monday every day at the same time. And mum's friend was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said she had gone with mum to the initial appointment and heard all of the horrendous side effects, yeah. heard how bad it was, how hard the recovery was. Um, What's and, the point for a whole year of what? Misery. Yeah, exactly. Well, they were only going to do five days and that was it. Yeah, okay. That was it. And so I was like, ah, oh. I was really taken aback. Like, okay, what do you mean you don't think this is a good idea? Like the doctor basically said to me, we, ha- we have to do it if we want any chance. Yeah. And so mum's friend came over as well as one of her nursing friends who had a friend who had had radiation. And she basically, the nurse was saying, it's like running five marathons, Kathy. Like it takes it out of you so much. I don't know that you're up to it. I don't know that you're capable. Was she lucid? She was, but she wasn't. We were talking and she wasn't giving an opinion. I was like, mum, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to go ahead with this or do you not? And she was just like, I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, I think I think maybe she just didn't want to have to make that decision. So it was you. It was me. So oh, that's oh. We went to makes the, you feel sick. Yeah, we went to the hospital, and Mum's friend came with us as well. And we're sitting there, and they put us in the waiting room, and then all of a sudden they're wheeling us into the room. They're like hauling her up onto that big metal bed, oh. and they're making the big plastic mask oh, for her yeah, face, like a robot. Thing. And I was, and she is by this point. Her hands, she, she can't take her glasses on and off her face by herself. Her hands oh. are not working at all. She is not eating anything at all. She's not able to walk unaided. She was in a wheelchair. And they're hauling her onto the bed. And I'm like, I don't think this is necessary. And one of the technicians was like, what do you mean? Do you not think that that you need to be doing this? I was like, I thought before they would start the process of making the mask that we would get to talk to one of the... Um, yeah radio yeah the oncology radiologists and they were like okay well we'll go get someone for you so the regular oncology radiologist that mum had it was his day off so they sent down yeah excuse me uh i need to talk to you so they sent this lady doctor who didn't know mum from a bar of soap she just like looked at mum's file and basically was like what's the problem here and i was like i don't know that doing this treatment is in mum's best interest. Like she can't, I said, she can't move her hands. Is she get, is doing radiation going to give her, yeah. is, regain the use of her hands? No. Okay. Is it going to extend her life? No. Is it going what? to make her feel any better? No. And I was like, well, then what the fuck is the point of doing yeah. this? Why are we putting her through this? And, and she why was there no one advocating for her apart from yourself? Oh, I, I felt, I was like all overwhelmed. I got really upset. I was like, why are we doing this? And she's like, well, you know, it, it's basically our, our hope to slow down the the growth of this yeah. tumor, the tumors in her brain. I'm like, yeah, but you see how fucked she is now. You're basically telling me you're trying to freeze her the way she is yeah. for, for an extended period of time. 
It's an and, absolute no from me. And I was, I burst into tears and mum was sitting there and I was like, please, mum, don't make me choose. Don't make me choose this. I don't want to have to make this choice for you. You need to tell me, what do you want to do? Do you want to do the treatment or do you not want to do the treatment? And she just would not fucking answer oh. me. She just said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. And I was like, okay, well, if you're saying you don't know and the doctors are sort of saying to me, well, it's the only shot you've got. Then I say, yeah, you're going to have to do the treatment because I can't live. No, I can't live with the, that on my conscience saying there was something we could have done and, and I chose not to do it. Like I can't, I can't live with that. Um, I've got a, had a bit of a situation like that. Nowhere near as sort of scary as yours because mum was sort of in her final days. But the day I came back from that holiday and she sort of played up all night and the hospice had been around numerous times. When I got there, the nurse was actually there and gave me this sort of syringe of um, stuff to give mum. Like a sedative and morphine. Yeah, and it was stuff a mixture like a of things, I think. Yeah, that I could give to mum if... Um, it happened again. Like if she got that terminal restlessness and yeah, got upset. Or, and, yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay. I sort of got the impression that, you know, if I gave it, and she technically she probably could have passed away. Like you yeah. couldn't pinpoint it. Um, and I was at the time I was like, okay. But, man, if I had to do it. If you had given her that syringe and she had died, even would, though they told you yeah. that that was a possibility, I would, but it wouldn't have been your fault. No, I would not be the person I am today. Yeah. You're the one that has to, she doesn't live with the consequences I do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, luckily, I we left the hospital that day and I had said, yep, she's going to do the treatment because I couldn't, I, I didn't feel like I had enough information or resources to make that decision on her behalf. I thought I was doing what was best. And then literally the next day, hospice came to see mum and a doctor and a nurse came and they sat with mum and they spoke to her and they came in and they said to me there is absolutely no way in hell she can do those five days of radiation we're calling the hospital and cancelling it she's like they're so amazing oh they i mean and that's the thing they know what they're talking about they have seen this before well they're they're actually really empathetic and yeah and i wonder if maybe the hospital has a, a certain protocol that they have to follow where no matter what, no matter how fucked up someone is, they have to offer the treatment just in case someone... Well, it's a very structured yeah. sort of process and yeah. things they have to follow. Yeah. And they can give you the good and the bad, but overall their sort of prerogative is treatment usually. Yeah. Whereas the other side, like hospice, is a bit more sort of um, pragmatic in terms of what's actually happening to the patient. Yeah. Um, and they do have a lot of empathy and they're really supportive of families. So yeah. They give you a lot of clarity, I found. Yeah. Um, and I'm so pleased that you had that clarity that day. And honestly, I, if, if even if we had gone ahead with the, the radiation, I would not have been able to get mum to the hospital unless I had ordered a, an ambulance to come every day and oh. pick her up. Like By that point, she couldn't even sit in the front seat of my car or the back seat or anything. Like, the logistics I, would have just been... Yeah, and not it, to mention it, the cost. Yeah, and, and honestly, she had died within basically two weeks of that day. She, she would was, not have survived that. She was ready. Totally. I think she she had made that decision in her head, um, and to protect the others, you know, don't say it, but actions speak louder than words. Yeah. And when they're ready, I think from just you know observing and being in the hospital, that's it. Yeah. It's almost like something changes in their mind, and I don't know this at all for a fact, but it appears that that's what that that's what happens. They it's almost like I think they just kind of make peace with it. I think so. A lot of people do. I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for the people that I know. Yeah. Um, and they definitely seem to have made peace with it. Yeah. 
Um, so what do you think your mum would think about our podcast? Oh, she she wouldn't have an absolute clue what it was, but she'd go around <laughs> telling everyone. Yeah. So she'll be like, oh, Lizzie's doing it. She'll call it like a cast pod or something, get her yeah. words mixed up. Like, oh, it's, it's like a internet radio show. Yeah, yeah. She wouldn't. Mum and Dad, bless Dad, he's gone onto the podcast and how, now he knows how they work and he's yeah, read good. all about them and given us a five-star rating. Perfect. So that's good. So Mum would have done that, but she... She would prob to be perfectly honest. She probably wouldn't be that interested in the podcast. She'd be more interested in telling people that there is one. But do you think she would like? She's happy somewhere knowing that the podcast is about her. Absolutely. She yeah. keeps sending me. I keep seeing like those on my phone, like two, 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 or four, angel four, four, numbers. And I look at I look at them, and it tells sort of tells you what they mean. And I'm like, yep, that's mum. Like she's sending messages saying. I do believe in that. I mean, it's, you're you're a bit more. Um, I think I think it's actually a coping mechanism. Yeah, right. To like, um, I love keeping her memory alive. And to me, if it's mum sending me numbers, then I get joy out of that. Yeah. So I just go with it. You find peace in that. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, I never notice any of the numbers. So obviously. Well, you do because I send them to well, you. Well, I mean, you screenshot them to me all the time being like, look at this one. Like we've made a decision and this is the numbers that showed up. So we're on the right path. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's us for today. Thank you so much for listening to us waffle on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at death and all the rest. And if you have a question or you'd like to share your story, you can email us at daatr podcast at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. This podcast was born out of a need to talk about our personal experiences with death. To be clear, we are not mental health professionals. We are simply sharing our stories. 